Hi folks, Sandy here, just chiming in with a quick note. I'm sorry it's been so long since we last released an episode. Since we started editing and releasing these, Matt and I have both moved to new cities and started new jobs, so things have been really busy. Uh, but that's what happens at Greendale. Sometimes life gets in the way and you need to take a bit of a break and then come back and try again. And that's what we're doing. So this semester we're hoping to release one episode a month and then we'll go from there. And just a reminder that we started recording these during the pandemic, so we might mention that. Thanks for listening. Now on with the show. Attention Greendale students and welcome to Streets Behind, a podcast about the TV show community. Hosted by two friends who met on campus but couldn't hang out during the pandemic. So we started this podcast to stay connected. And together we come up with so many insights about the show and the characters that we never would have thought of on our own. We know it's not perfect, but if it was, it wouldn't be Greendale. So join us. You're already already accepted. accepted. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. What's up, everybody? You're listening to Streets Behind, our fan pod dedicated to our beloved TV sitcom, if that's even a thing anymore, community. Uh, As always, I am Matthew Kroll. And I'm Sandy Keldrone. And today, Sandy, we are going to discuss season one, episode 10, the title of which is Environmental Science. So (laughs) environmental science, which interestingly, the environmental or the sort of environmentalism aspect of this episode uh, quickly sort of falls by the wayside um, (laughs) and then becomes not really at all what the what what the episode is about. Although in fairness, you could say the way they develop these titles to sort of sound like course titles that's always sort of points in the general direction but is never really exactly what the what the episode is about and and i don't know that this is actually the case but you could also say that they're making a comment about what most environmental episodes are which is something that's not really about the environment and doesn't help anyone (laughs) nice i hadn't thought about that (laughs) so I'll set up our discussion today with, uh, as we often do, the sort of three main plot points that we'll look at. But then I do just want to dive into the beginning of the show and how they set up this like Green Week thing and then how that quickly falls (laughs) by the wayside and all these other things are really what what this particular episode is about. But so today, I think the three main uh, plot points that we were going to discuss are number one, Chang's failing marriage Mm -hmm. and I guess what maybe we could call his midlife crisis or something very much adjacent or a precursor to a midlife crisis or something. Yeah, his entire midlife is in crisis, but I think this is a high point in particular. (laughs) That's true. And one way you could look at the entire character arc of Chang and say it's a massive midlife crisis (laughs) considering some of the places his character will go. Uh, But so that was number one on our list. Number two was, and these aren't in any particular order, but number two was Shirley's fear of public speaking. And she Mm -hmm. has to give this pitch for this business in one of her classes. And Pierce, of course, volunteers to help her. Mm -hmm. And so they are sort of 
paired together in this episode. And then thirdly, we have an Abed and Troy plot point, mm -hmm. which is that they have to train a rat to respond to some sort of stimulus, part of some sort of science class or whatever. It's never really clear what the class Just, is, but yeah, general science. Yeah. yeah <laughs> science class. Why not? <laughs> um, but Troy and Abed, uh, and I'm sure this was Abed's choice, decide to use the theme song from, um, an American Tale, mm -hmm. which I, I don't, I don't know the actual name of the song, but it's somewhere out somewhere there. out there. Is that the name of the song? I believe so. Okay, so anyways, they they choose that as the way that they will train this rat. So those are the sort of the three plot points. But back to your point, and I did want to talk about this a little bit, but now I want to talk about it all the much, all that much more because I want to hear what you have to say about this. So where the episode starts is they're in the uh, cafeteria. The, the dean is like using a boom box with a plug-in mic to announce <laughs> that it's green week, that it's their like, you know, ecology, environmental awareness week at Greendale. Mm -hmm. But of course he has decided to title or to rename Greendale for the week to Envirodale, <laughs> at which point Starburns is like eating some sort of like wrap or some sandwich is just like, but green was already in the title. Yeah. <laughs> which leads to a great line when the dean tells his assistant to reprint all the Envirodale posters and she says, but we made, like we printed 5,000 of these and he's like, just do it. I'm trying to save the environment here or yeah. something like that. But to your point, what we were saying is that's the way the episode gets set up. But then you never really see any of the stuff that happens for Green no. Week. Like you don't no. see any of the Green Week stuff. And that's important in a way because there are episodes like the one where we saw Annie and Shirley combine for the candlelight vigil for the for the journalist who had been murdered or whatever. Mm -hmm. There are episodes of community where there's some sort of like campus activity like social awareness mm -hmm. kind of thing happening where you actually get to see that happening on campus and this is sort of funny in a way because they set it up as green week and then you never see anything about it it's like no they, yeah. they set it up as the week dedicated to the environment and um all we see that they accomplish is they waste a bunch of paper um they hire <laughs> a band named green day that's not the real green day and they perform a concert and there's a bunch of green decorations and no one does anything for the environment at all. <laughs> so I so I hadn't thought about this and listeners will know, we don't necessarily like confer on this stuff beforehand. So let me ask, because you said maybe this is in some ways kind of like thumbing their nose at these other TV shows that will do like their environmental awareness episode, but then don't actually do anything um, within the episode. So I, do you want to say more about that? Because I'm curious now to hear what you what where that uh, was coming from or, or how you sort of, um, yeah, put that into perspective. I think that they were probably aware of other shows that do specialty episodes, right? We know that this community, this world exists in a reality where there's lots of other TV and movies and media and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that the writers had to be aware of, you know, the existence of other environmentally themed episodes and, and how little they do. But I also don't feel like this was some big intentional commentary, just that like, oh, that's kind of a convenient excuse for having this expedient I way to get this, you know, 
background on campus going and make it interesting and make it special and not just kind of like everyday stuff that's happening on campus. Um, so I don't think it was like a conscious and sincere commentary. I think it was like, oh, kind of winky. Like, um, let's let's uh, do like a half-assed theme. Um, oh yeah, let's make that half-assed theme about the environment. People half-ass that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> no, that makes sense. And I mean, the other thing too is, is it maybe is a bit of a nudge at like, we could, we'll set this up as one of our like, um, as one of our social commentary episodes, but it won't be a social commentary episode because that's another trope in American sitcoms, right. like the social commentary episode, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so in a way, I, 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 I could completely see, because it's a very, we always talk about this, such a smart group of writers. I could see them being like, we need to set something up that makes it seem like we're doing this episode and then completely not do that. <laughs> and so... I take your point that maybe they weren't intentionally commenting on the various other shows that have like done some sort of social commentary or, you know, environmentally aware episode that never really gets to the heart of like any environmental mm -hmm. issues. And I could see that they didn't necessarily mean it that intentionally, but I do think the more you, that I hear you talk about it, it, it's definitely intentional that it that this gets presented as the setup and then completely recedes <laughs> to the background. Like that part is definitely intentional. Like it's Green Week at Envirodale. <laughs> and then it's just like, they just pull that rug out and they're just like, yeah, yeah. no, we're not actually going to do anything about that. But it's funny. And now you've got like the gears turning here. And I'm wondering like, I wonder if there was some sort of subtle commentary with the like amount of, well, and they made the explicit line, as I mentioned, mm -hmm. but the amount of stuff that was printed and how it came down to like a concert with this band called Green Day. And maybe there, maybe part of them was like, yeah, that's the kind of shit you get with a green week and none of that does anything yeah. for the environment, you know? Yeah. yeah. This yeah. band is completely unrelated to the environment. Like, they could not be less related. Yeah. Let's celebrate the environment. Sure. What are you going to do? Print a bunch of flyers and host a conference, host a <laughs> concert. And you're just like, oh, but what are we doing for the environment this week? You know? You're like, it's green, though. Yeah. We're just letting you know, man. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So shortly after that opening, you get into Chang's class and he's like sleeping. They're taking a quiz. Quiz ends, you know, Annie doesn't well, put her pencil Well, we have down. to say how the quiz ends because this is so funny that he has his like stopwatch <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and when time is up, he, he says time's up and everyone in the class puts down their writing utensil and puts up their hands like they're being arrested. It's so funny because it just tells you that he has established this as like, yes. this is how this class ends. And it shows you that there's <laughs> been like this whole thing that's been building in this class with his authority that mm -hmm. we like that we haven't seen i mean we've seen a lot of it because there's been stuff that happens in his class but like this particular thing you're right and i noticed that watching this again like how immediately everybody's just everybody well except annie who is yeah. still working and gets in trouble for working exactly but annie's continuing to work spirals into this threat well not threat but this demand from chang that they write an essay of such a you know of a certain length about not following the rules and then uh, yeah as punishment for annie's mistake exactly and yeah. then everybody like complains and it's like all right now you want two pages of this six pages of that it eventually becomes a 20 page paper <laughs> 
uh, that they have to write. At which point Shirley's like, I know how to say like hello. And like, I know the word for table is like a Spanish one-on-one yeah. class. But so Chang basically tells the class that what he expects of them by Monday. So we're assuming this is late in the week is a 20 page paper that they are clearly incapable of writing in mm -hmm. like proficient or fluent Spanish, given where they're at in the class. Obviously the class is all very upset about this. So the study group turns to Jeff to somehow go alleviate this situation. Yeah. Talk chain out of this. Talk chain out of it. And what you learn in that because of Jeff's skill from picking juries at one point in his life, but being able to read a room and observe people is that Chang's wife has left him temporarily. So that's mm -hmm. kind of the main plot point, I guess, is, yeah, the Chang's struggling relationship and this sort of part of his midlife crisis and how Jeff and Chang start to build a friendship really with the aim of getting Chang to like drop all these ridiculous assignments but the subcurrent of all of this is the group's need for jeff to be the person that like takes care of all these things right like mm -hmm. their reliance on jeff to be the guy that goes and resolves these issues and again we've talked about this a lot in some ways it's jeff's need to be needed in that way like that's a lot of what's going on here, at least as far as I see it, is Jeff wants to be the person that they all rely on and need. And it's a great scene where they're in the study room and they're trying to convince Jeff to go talk to Chang. And mm -hmm. so it's the six of them standing on one side and he's, you know, as he usually is at the table texting or something, looking at his phone, like feet up on the desk or whatever. And he says something like, but how would I be able to convince Chang if I can't even like convince you guys that I got, you know, not to make me do this? And mm -hmm. they're all like, yeah, what a great point. At which point Troy goes, wait a minute, you are convincing. <laughs> it's like such a classic Troy line. Um, but so, yeah, eventually he gets sent to Chang's office and determines that Chang has been, that his wife has left him and... And that's what's really behind this outburst of exactly. authoritarianism in the Spanish class. Exactly. All the punishment is Chang responding to this emotional crisis in his life. Jeff and him become buddies. They go out for drinks. You know, eventually they're in his office, like drinking or uh, smoking cigars, whatever. And that plot point gets wrapped up when Jeff invites Chang's wife, <laughs> who he, Chang told them they met at a salsa dancing <laughs> club, to come <laughs> do... To, to dance to dance i guess salsa dance to sure. this band green day who is not the real green day but rather a band that spells their name g-r-e-e-n-e-d-a-e-y-e -E -E -E, and is some <laughs> sort of like celtic irish folk music band some um, kilt based rock yeah, yes exactly <laughs> Kilt rock. That's amazing. Yes. So that's sort of the through line of, a, of the plot point. But what I wanted to talk to you about was the character development with Chang, because I actually thought there were some scenes mm -hmm. where his acting was phenomenal. He's got a lot of range in this episode. He does. He shows some range. I thought it was Ken mm -hmm. Jeong shows some range. I thought it was amazing. Um, but then also I wanted to talk to you about that whole like Jeff's role in the group, their need, their reliance on him and his like need to be needed, I think mm -hmm. was maybe more the um, kind of the level I wanted to talk about this at. So when Jeff goes into Chang's office to try and figure out a way to kind of talk him off this ledge and, mm -hmm. and realizes that it's really Chang's personal life that's yeah. causing all this trouble. 
Jeff is kind of, you can tell that he's having kind of like a, a fake conversation with Chang, right? That he's asking questions that he's kind of boasting about how fun it is to go out and, you know, be single. And we know that Jeff has an ulterior motive here, but I think we also like what that seemed like to me is that this is probably what like most of Jeff's like quote unquote friendships were like before he came to Greendale where it was just like a bunch of artifice and just mm -hmm. kind of fitting into this role of kind of, you know, bro, that like, these are the things yeah. we do. We go out, we're single. Isn't that great? Without actually any like sincere connection or enjoyment. <laughs> um, so I thought that was like a real like bummer window into what Jeff's life was probably like before he had these kind of like real friendships with, with the group at Greendale. That's amazing. I hadn't thought about that, but that does actually make so much sense because there's the episode in season two that we'll get to eventually where you meet one of Winger's old law partners and it is totally like bro culture, yeah. corporate law, like we go out and drink and do whatever and like, yeah, win court cases and make money and like stick it to the little guy or whatever, you know? Yeah, but um, like they're playing a part and there's no like actual human connection. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's, that's a great commentary. I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. There, it, there is definitely a tonal shift in that conversation mm -hmm. where Jeff is very much just like, hey, I'll go like schmooze this guy or whatever. Schmooze like, is a good word for it, yeah. Yeah, like get him to drop, but you know, get him to drop this essay assignment or whatever. But all right, but I'm also like observant enough to see that actually there's something going on in his life. And then when there's the tonal shift with Ken Jong, and he gives like the very real kind of honest story about how he mm -hmm. met his wife, then there is a bit of a like, oh wait, this is this is real. And I don't know that Jeff necessarily goes into it completely like genuinely with a, from an emotional standpoint with Chang because it's always like an ulterior motive there's an end game there but what's interesting is at the end when Britta realizes that Jeff made this happen for Chang's life to the benefit of them not having to do the essay you see this sort of emotional response from Jeff that indicates that though maybe the, he was still sort of playing Chang as like a puppet in this end game mm -hmm. of getting these, these uh, assignments dropped, there was a real emotional investment mm -hmm. for him and the group. Like he really yeah. wanted to make this happen for the group. And it wasn't about impressing Britta or any of that stuff as far as we can tell. And the way it's, so that's, yeah, that's amazing. I hadn't mm -hmm. thought about that, but you get the artifice of Winger and the way he kind of like bros it up with guys and goes mm -hmm. drinking scotch. But then there's also this like emotional growth from him in a sense, like at least with the group. Mm -hmm. What did you think about then this, this, um, as I see it anyway, this idea that he needs to be needed by the group, much like in the Halloween episode, you know, when he has the the opportunity to whatever, hook up with Professor Slater, but he has to like save, um, <laughs> he has to save Pierce from under the table. I mean, we've talked about this in several episodes. What, what did you think about that aspect of it? Yeah, I think that that's definitely here with Jeff as well. And I, I do think it's connected to like his need to be a leader. I think there just there aren't any like real leadership positions available in this new reality. So um, he he will take being leader of of the group. But I think that the reason that he 
stays with it is because he enjoys having an emotional connection to these people, even if it doesn't always pay off for him. And that's kind of similar to like what he's been, what he does for Chang eventually in this episode. Chang calls him on it. So at, at the end, Chang has a, a successful dance reunion with his estranged wife, which also allows him to realize that while Jeff did do a very good and kind thing in arranging for this opportunity for them to dance together he also did it for his own selfish purposes <laughs> at the yeah. same time yeah, and yeah. that it's okay for Chang to call him out on that um, and I think that pretty much encapsulates Jeff and his mode of operating with human beings I'm glad you brought that up because I forgot the mic drop at the end where Chang does <laughs> demand that Jeff do a one-page paper yeah. on like taking some taking advantage of someone who's emotionally vulnerable. Yes. <laughs> um, so it's true. It's true. It, it, Jeff gets his comeuppance, if you will, and there's and there is he gets the essay dropped for the class, but mm -hmm. he was also earlier in the episode willing to just have his assignments given an automatic a if mm -hmm. he continue you know and at, at the expense of the rest of the class having to do these quizzes or 20 page papers just by hanging out with with chang a couple great lines from this plot line and i don't know if these are necessarily be in order so forgive me but one when jeff goes into chang's office the poster behind chang is him dressed as a matador yeah. fighting a black bull and it's a tiger striped matador's outfit and it just says El Tigre on the bottom. Uh, there are a bunch of other uh, tigers in the office. Like they really went heavy on the El Tigre. Yeah. I never noticed that before. There's like some sort of porcelain tiger like yeah, right at the front of his desk. There's like a menagerie in the, yeah. Um, and it's also funny then when, when Abed's looking for the rat and he comes in and he's like, is there a rat in here? They do this whole rat pun thing, which we'll get to in a minute. But then he just, <laughs> you know, he's like, El Tigre. <laughs> he just refers yeah. to Chang as El Tigre. Um, and then another great line is at one point they're walking out of the class after Chang has told the class that Jeff had already turned in his 20 page paper or whatever. And the class knows something is up and they're all, or the group knows something is up. So the study group's waiting for him in the hallway and Jeff and Chang come out and they're saying something about, is it cherry daiquiri? They're like, yeah, yeah cherry daiquiri. And for anyone who's ever had a night out on the town in a bar um, and and definitely like maybe <laughs> to quote the Eagles, taking it to the limit, um, <laughs> that often is like something that encapsulates that sort of like drunken revelry, night out, house party, you know, college, whatever, bar kind of like culture to me is like you get these little snippets that you remember that become these inside jokes oh sure like, because we, you don't remember the whole night yeah but but you remember these like symbolisms or whatever and so you'll see somebody from like a house party weeks later like on campus and you'll be like <laughs> cherry daiquiri you know, yeah. Like, yeah cherry daiquiri or whatever and so <laughs> it was it was so funny because that was like so, that just reminded me of like times in my life where I went to a party with friends and the next day you'd just be like, do you remember cherry daiquiri? Like, and not necessarily that you consumed one, but like probably a person that you gave the nickname cherry daiquiri because they were drinking. <laughs> so it, that, that like, that really hit home for me. Maybe this is, maybe I should be embarrassed about this, but you know, that was 15, 20 years ago, but that I'm like, oh, I know that, that conversation where the most you can do is summon up 
some like nickname you gave somebody the night before and it's like hilarious even though you can't really remember why um, see that is funny that that is your like college connection moment okay. in this episode because mine was so on the other end of the spectrum oh nice <laughs> was, because i remember being in i was in grad school at the time in a graduate level anthropo anthropology theory course and we had like the most intense professor, like this professor was like old school anthropologist, like spent every summer on like a, you know, barely populated island studying <laughs> small groups. And like, she would occasionally like throw like weird snippets of information into the class lecture. Like when I was doing my own malaria test, because there was no one else on the island with a microscope, blah, 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 blah. And you're just like, what? Oh my God. And so she was really intense and, and a very like tough grader. And at one point during the class, she was like, oh, and remember your reviews of this book are due, you know, in like four days or whatever. And the, the book was like a 500 page book we hadn't started yet. And it was one of those things where you're like, wait a minute, every single person in the class is confused. And then <laughs> after class, when we actually talked to each other, realized that like no one knew about this assignment, that there's something has gone wrong. <laughs> and they elected me to go talk to her <laughs> <laughs> because I was like the most reasonable, like diplomatic nice. person. I got nominated to go talk to the scary professor to try and get her to give us more time on this impossible to do assignment. So yeah, we did, we did end up getting more time. I'm not well sure done. she believed us that no one act, no one really knew, but she did give us some, some more time. That's amazing. <laughs> so that, oh, that's a great, that's a great, I mean, it's funny how this show and we've talked about this and we've, and I think as our pod has gone on, you know, still in its infant stages here, but like we have connected this to like college memories or, you know, mm -hmm. like, or whatever the nostalgia for like, in the show invites a nostalgia in viewers, particularly of a certain age, a certain generation, not just for the pop culture references, but also for these kinds of things that you experienced mm -hmm. at that time of your life. So yeah, that's hilarious that you had like a very like real and I'm sure at the time, very frustrating academic, like uh, nostalgia or whatever that was, yes. that was like, kicked on or whatever by this show and for me it was just like I know the cherry daiquiri moment man yep. like yeah. I mean of course I knew those too but that didn't stand yeah, out yeah 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 no and I should say I should say like uh yes I'm sure you have those moments as well but it, it is but that's what I think we love about the show and why we love doing this pod is because we come to these recordings and it is we have different takes on things yeah. and just different kind of yeah we remember different parts of, of ourselves at that age or whatever. And it's also <laughs> interesting too, because you and I didn't know each other at that age. Yeah. So it's always a learning experience for us as friends to be like, oh, give me a window to like maybe <laughs> 20 years ago or whatever. So, oh, and then one of the last lines I'll say, and then we'll move on to Shirley and Pierce maybe, but uh, Annie has a great line when she, when they're in the hallway right after the cherry daiquiri thing where they're calling out Jeff and she refers to Jeff. She says, you devious clump of overpriced fabric and hair products. <laughs> so good. And she'd called him a handsome hobo, I think, earlier in the episode when they were trying to get him to go talk to Chang. But yeah, a devious <laughs> clump of overpriced fabric and hair product. I thought that, that was a great a line. Very good summation of Jeff. I think the, the other line that stood out to me in that arc uh, is when Chang is talking to Jeff about his wife 
and um, <laughs> referencing her photo and she's a very beautiful woman. And <laughs> Chang makes a comment about like, make no mistake, like I pleasured that woman greatly. And Jeff is like, yeah, you would have to. <laughs> That is fantastic. I will I will so just cash this chip in now uh, for our like favorite part of the episode. Uh -huh. That was going to be my favorite oh. part of the episode. Well, no, no, it's great because it's such a great, such a great line. Yeah, Jeff says, yeah, he was, um, yeah, he says something like, I'm not surprised you said that or whatever. He's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, just looking at you. I'm sure, I'm sure you did. I'm not surprised. Yeah. Um, no, that's a great, that's a great line. And from Jeff's perspective, what a great way to get this guy on board with you and to get like his like confidence back to go out with you for drinks when he mm -hmm. makes this claim about what he was able to do for his wife. And you're just, <laughs> just like, I'm absolutely certain that's true, my friend. <laughs> like, I don't doubt you that have nothing else bit. to offer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't doubt that one bit. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, that's amazing. So, okay. So then the second arc we were going to talk about is Shirley's fear of public speaking. She's in some sort of class, maybe a public speaking mm -hmm. class or a marketing class where she has to give this presentation. And it's going to be about her brownie shop that she wants to open because online. online. Yes. Her online. That's right. Her that's online brownie shop, which is really sort of the reason that Shirley's here, right? She's come back mm -hmm. to school to get a degree so she can, you know, a business degree or something of a sort so she can be an entrepreneur. Turn baking into a career. Exactly. And and get this brownie shop and off the ground. And so she's so nervous about the pressure, with the pressure from that and then having to write the 20 page paper for Chang. She's like, what am I going to do? Pierce steps into the void and says, I'd be willing to help. And she just immediately is like, yeah, sure. Sorry, she says ahead. like, um, yes, that's how messed up this is. Like, I'll accept your help. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I was gonna say. And then she immediately comments on the fact after she's like accepts his help, she immediately explicitly says in front of <laughs> in front of Pierce and the group, like, do you see how much pressure I'm under that I just accepted racist, sexist Pierce's help um with <laughs> yeah, with this project. Um, that was the other point in the episode where I'm like, I, I feel what that's like because I feel like that's the point where we're all at in a COVID year where we're just like everything is so fucked up that yeah I will accept any help yeah. I can find I haven't thought about that but it's true we're all vulnerable we're in that way there. right now where you're like we're yes. all like Pierce whatever yeah, yeah. man what yeah, do you yeah. got <laughs> yeah we're all in a willing to accept help from Pierce sort of mindset right now yeah exactly this I think I bring it up because one it's a major you know plot arc but also it's I think maybe the first time we've seen Shirley and Pierce really just the two of them mm -hmm. in in one of the plot arcs there's obviously been a lot of interplay between them dialogue mm -hmm. in the larger group and in the study room but here's an opportunity for just these two characters to be on screen together and in his own weird and messed up way, Pierce actually offers genuine help to Shirley yeah. that ends up really helping her in the mm -hmm. moment that she needs help. His Basically, he gives her three points of advice. The first one is she's working off cards and she's doing a terrible job because she's reading. And his first one is basically yeah. like, you need to open yourself up to the audience and not read the cards. You need to mm -hmm. present this to them, including his like hand them a sandwich line or whatever. <laughs> but the first point is basically like, you know, speak to the audience, project yourself and don't like hide behind the cards. Mm -hmm. The second one is 
you need to say memorable things that get this to stick in their brain. Like you can't just present it to them. You need to do something catchy and marketing, you know, markety or whatever, mm -hmm. including like using <laughs> words that have like sexual innuendos or and no connection to what you're marketing <laughs> and no connection to what you're actually trying. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. What you're trying to sell um, or pitch to them. The other one was, in this same vein of saying things that are memorable is use a Nicholson line at the yeah. end. Like as he, like when he likes his- Close with a Nicholson. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the one that he uses is, you can't handle a moist towelette. <laughs> so, you know, listeners will remember that he's like the heir to the Hawthorne wipes moist towelette throne or whatever. So it's just, I mean, it's hilarious. Um, and then the, to which then she, at the end of her successful speech, um, <laughs> is like pulling back her hair to imitate Nicholson coming through the door in The Shining and says, yeah. here's Johnny. She says, here's Brownie, which gets like <laughs> a standing ovation. Um, and then the third point, and I bring this one up because it hits close to home. He did give her the very practical advice of wearing a dark shirt when doing, oh, when doing a advice. presentation. And yeah. for anybody who's seen this episode and knows why, and anyone who knows me, you will know <laughs> dark shirts, absolutely, when you have to get up in front of a room full of people. A dark shirt or a totally white shirt it's got to be yeah. one or the other <laughs> yeah those light blues are not safe yeah you or a gray you're just nope. getting you're getting complete you're like you're getting yeah. hue change as i like to call <laughs> it um but so any thoughts sandy on you know the the interplay between shirley and pierce this opportunity for them to be on camera together in kind of a tandem in this episode which we haven't seen before but also I thought Pierce's really genuine desire to help Shirley and, and the fact that it, it seemed to work, like Shirley really appreciated his advice and it, yeah, I think it, it actually worked. Well, and this is a realm where like Pierce has something of value to, to offer. A lot of times what he has to offer is outdated and inappropriate. <laughs> but in this case, he's basically telling Shirley how to speak to a group of people with the comfort that Pierce has of mm -hmm. not caring at all about their acceptance and just assuming that whatever you give them is going to be well received. Shirley doesn't make any of those assumptions, but he's basically just like teaching her how to be that confident and oblivious like him. That's a great point. I hadn't thought, God, yeah, that's so good. I hadn't thought about that because that's true. I mean, essentially what he's saying to her is you're worried too much about them. You need to just be like me and really not give a shit what anybody thinks about you, which you and I have talked about in previous episodes of our podcast, how much of that is in Pierce's character. Mm -hmm. This like complete lack of concern with what other people think and how a lot of that comes with his age. And mm -hmm. so, yes, you get the sexism and the racism, certainly not excusing those things. But I guess my point here is just rather that even his saying these controversial things is part of that character mm -hmm. or that aspect of his character that's been very well developed, which is like, yeah, I just don't, I just don't give a shit. Like, I just say mm -hmm. it like I'm an old white dude and I have some money. I'll just say whatever. And so there's right. definitely the privilege aspect to it. But mm -hmm. I also think to your point just now there, I think a lot of it is just his age. I mean, he's like a man mm -hmm. in his sixties who's gone back to community college for no other reason, but he has nothing to do and no friends, you know, and yeah. there is so much of it is just like, yeah, I just don't care what people say for better or for worse. I just don't care. And that is a big 
I guess the core of what he's trying to impart on Shirley is like, you're so wrapped up in, in yourself and kind of hiding behind the cards and you're so nervous, but really you just need to like not give a shit. And then also do these corny marketing things like use the word orgasm and like throw in a uh, Jack Nicholson line or whatever. (laughs) And like, and Pierce, like his character clearly craves like love, right? Like he wants the like love of the group, but I don't think he craves like approval. Hmm. That's true. No, I like the way you phrased that because, uh, yeah. And you know, this is starting to make me think about the parallels with him and Jeff because both of them need Mm -hmm. love. Both of them are desperately in need of being loved. Both of them have awkward relationships with their father. Jeff's Mm -hmm. dad left. Pierce's dad has basically always treated him like dirt, you know, as we'll come to find out and hasn't given him like the sort of traditional like parental love. But it's very different in the sense that Jeff needs love, but he also needs approval. He needs to be liked. Mm -hmm. He needs to be needed. He needs to be in charge. He needs to be respected. (laughs) He needs a lot. Yeah. Like he needs that whole package of like interpersonal emotional connection and validation or something like that. Whereas what what Pierce, I love the way you phrase that because it's like, yeah, he needs the love, but he doesn't need approval. He doesn't need you to no. like him or respect him, but he does need you to love him in some like deep sort of way. And, you know, this also harkens back to the epi- the debate episode where he's helping Britta with getting over smoking. Um, we've mm-hmm. seen this before with Pierce inserting himself as someone who's, I mean, him writing the theme song, you know, where he says to the Dean, like, oh, you've got someone who's written a successful theme song right here or whatever. You know, he's always got like his card ready. He needs to be needed in that way as well. Mm-hmm. But I think you're right. If, if he crashes and burns, he's just like, whatever. I mean, you still yeah. needed my services, but you're right. It's like whatever. he needs the tomorrow. love. Yeah, he needs the love, but not the approval or the validation in some weird mm-hmm. way. He just needs to know that, like... If he fails, it doesn't matter to Pierce. If he succeeds and you love him for it, that's what matters. And in this case, it works. This case, meaning with Shirley in the presentation. And that also kind of connects to the other um, funny bit that we get from Pierce in this episode that's not kind of like tied to any of these arcs is um, he decides that maybe Jeff's secret to his success is the chair that he (laughs) sits in at the table. And so when seeing an opportunity, Pierce sits in this chair and tries to act like Jeff. He's like pretending to text on the phone while just like making denigrating comments about whatever's happening around him. And so that was just another fun Chevy Chase moment. Yeah, that's, no, I'm glad you brought that up because it really does fit into, again, like what he needs from the group. He wants to be seen as the leader because he sees- He wants the attention. He wants the attention. And he sees himself, as he said to Jeff, like he sees a younger version of himself and Jeff. Some mm-hmm. great lines come out of that when when Abed walks in and calls it out and everyone- and Yeah. everyone's like what's up with Pierce he's like oh he's sitting in Jeff's chair he's acting like Jeff and the double response from the group where they're like oh and then they're like oh (laughs) they're like they're kind of like sympathetic and like oh that's cute and then immediately they're all just like oh that's so disgusting (laughs) and um, (laughs) like come on man you're in your 60s like get it together and the the view or the shot of Annie sitting next to Shirley and they're, oh, oh, their second one is so good because they both, their face changes and like the tone and the like the emotional content of it just changes. I'm so glad they put Annie and Shirley next to each other because I love seeing them both on screen. They are 
that's where I mean they're both great at many things but they're both particularly good at that just like <laughs> facial reactions sound emotion like those sorts those of little things. things yeah so it was perfect for this I guess then just to wrap that up obviously it works they join the group at the end at the Green Day concert and you know Shirley kind of tells the group that it works which is Similar to the end of the debate episode when Britta walks up to him at the end and says, mm -hmm. oh, that really mm -hmm. works. So it's like a couple episodes now, a couple in a row, where we have Pierce offering his services and it works. Mm -hmm. And so you're starting a little bit with this plot arc to see Pierce, I guess, you know, ingratiating himself to the group in like a different way. And the writer's um, justifying having his character in the group. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it really is too. It's like, look, this guy's already controversial, but but it's it's interesting that now a couple episodes in a row, you've gotten um, resolution, I guess, to his plot arc, that his devices, odd though they may be, actually worked. <laughs> Was there anything else you wanted to say on that before we talk about Abed, Troy, and the Rat to wrap it up today? <laughs> no, I think that should be the title of this episode, Abed, Troy, and the Rat. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So Abed and Troy and their science class, which shout out to Garrett. Garrett's in that lab class. He's in there somewhere. <laughs> Um, doesn't have a line, but he's just sort of in the background. But Abed and Troy, they train this, or they have to train this rat to respond to stimulus. They choose somewhere out there from an American tale. And <laughs> Troy has a great line. He had to choose a duet or whatever. Yes. Um, but what we come to find out is that Troy, star athlete, former star quarterback, the jock, you know. Tough guy. Yep. He's not is, tough at all, but muscular. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Is like deathly afraid of these rats. <laughs> so there's a scene where they finally get the rat to respond a little bit. And then, you know, another student is walking by with the rat in their hand. Troy turns around, sees the rat in his face, like jumps up on the desk, knocks over <laughs> their Fievel, they've named the rat, but they've knocked over the, the cage or whatever and mm -hmm. the rat escapes. One odd sort of note I wanted to make here that ground level point of view of the cage on the ground and Abed doing like a picking up and like closing and opening of the <laughs> of the door to the cage like on the uh -huh. hinge to be like hmm the rat's gone and the door's open that yeah. was such a great homage to so so many moments in television where you oh, do like, like detective moments <laughs> yes and like the ground level pov of like a detective <laughs> like leaning in and like looking under a like, you know like now under i a see doormat. it from your point yeah. of view <laughs> yes exactly and the like opening like swiveling the door on its hinges yeah, a couple totally. times to be like hmm and it seems like the door opened i thought that was so good <laughs> i didn't notice that but yeah that was super fun such a great idea so i just love the direction there to be like let's call back to one of those old tv shows you know, like cop <laughs> shows where they're like but did you look under the trash can you know and then they yeah they show you like the point of view from the ground of some guy yeah. like leaning up. yeah um anyway but so the point really of this arc is that troy is dedicated to finding the rat but uh, or sorry Abed is dedicated to finding mm -hmm. the rat. Troy doesn't want to help because he's afraid of the rat. Mm -hmm. And this brings into question attention in their friendship in yes. which basically Abed comes into the uh, study group. He says, the Dean has hired exterminators to get rid of this rat. You've got to help me find it. Other, you know, it's like partly their grade for the project. It's partly saving the rat. It's also, Hey man, we're a team. We're friends. We're in, the, we're in mm -hmm. on this together. And there's an interesting moment. I wasn't sure how to, 
interpret it because the conversation between Abed and Troy is about is about like what it means to be friends. And Troy's yeah. point is basically like, well, friends are people who are willing to help me. <laughs> and you know, Abed, of course, is like, no, friendship is like a mutual thing. You help each other. And but then it was odd because Troy says something like, well, yeah, like you need to go do this for me because you're my friend or whatever. <laughs> Meaning, like you need to put the work in because you're my friend. What's odd is it hurts Abed. Because he runs out of the room singing, mm -hmm. <laughs> singing somewhere out there. But I thought that was odd because we know Abed is like this emotionless, you know, kind of spectrum-y like adults, right? Like we're supposed to think of him as being, I think, somewhere on the like Asperger's Al or Alzheimer's, well, hopefully not. <laughs> My family has Alzheimer's in it, people. Sorry, that was a deep Freudian slip. But um, <laughs> the uh, but but you know somewhere on the Asperger's um, autistic spectrum, I think is a fair way to like mm -hmm. classify this this character. And you know he has this kind of odd emotional relationship with the world because he sees everything through like TV and film and so, whatever um, pop culture. But so what did you think about that, Sandy? Because I was curious because that part was weird to me. I'm not saying it was wrong, but I just was like, oh, that's weird. Suddenly. Abed has this emotional reaction to Troy needing Abed to be a friendship on his terms. And I will also say this, this comes back up again as the series goes on. There's a couple mm -hmm. episodes where this becomes a thing, where Troy being like, no, this is what I expect from you, or Abed saying, this is what I expect from you. Their friendship is always kind of figuring out the balance. Yeah, and I think here we have kind of an odd moment where Normally, Troy is the um, person who's explaining how friendship works to Abed, but in this case, those roles are, are reversed, and you have kind of Troy's self-centeredness taking over mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, his normal kind of like expertise on human interaction. But I think that from Abed's perspective, it's not so much that he's like emotionless as it is that like he's often kind of detached mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. friendship mm -hmm. is new to him. But I kind of see it from his perspective where he's like, friendship is new to me, but I have learned that these are the rules and Troy is not following the rules for friendship. And I don't know how mm. to operate in this chaos. Now, that's a good point, too. And I like the way you phrase that, because you're right. He Abed does have emotional content and quality. We've seen that, like in the relationship with his dad. But you're right. He's more mm -hmm. detached. Because mm -hmm. he does always see the world through this filter of like pop culture and TV and movies. And literally through a camera lens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, but that's interesting that he's probably in his mind like, but no, I've seen the friendship episode of like whatever sitcom, you right. know, like you're not following the rules here, Troy. But then of course this gets resolved by uh, Abed finds the rat. And, and Troy pulls through. Troy comes he, through. Yeah, he, he faces his fear. Comes around the brilliant corner. physical comedy from Donald Glover. There are, okay, there's a lot, there's a moment where, so Troy finds Abed singing, you know, somewhere out there and joins in. First of all, they both have great voices. That's not like done post-production. That's them singing. Even the nice. first scene where they're in the lab class together. Mm -hmm. And you can tell they worked on this because there's an, there's a look that Donald Glover gives <laughs> Um, and when they're in the lab the first time, like before the, the rat gets lost or whatever, there's a look that Donald Glover gives Danny Pudi where there's like a Troy or Danny Glover or Danny Glover. <laughs> Danny Pudi, Donald Glover. It's complicated. Have I, been, have I been mixing that up like the whole episode? I'm no, so sorry. No, it's just okay. right there waiting for us to yeah, tip yeah, over yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Donald Glover um, gives Danny Pudi a look right before he has to go up 
an mm. octave or you know up in range <laughs> and you can see like he gives this look and kind of like tilts his head and and clearly it's like, like partly his mechanism for getting the note but I, I when i see that i'm like those dudes worked on this and that's a cue like hey i'm about to harm it like i'm going up you know what Aww, i mean I love and that. so and and which is great because the, their commitment to it they also have great voices but this second scene where they're singing it and it all gets resolved because they recover the rat or whatever there's this great moment I forget which line they're singing of the song, but they're singing it. And as Donald Glover is singing it, he gives Abed this look, or Troy gives him this look of like annoyance and frustration and kind of purses his lips, not purses his lips. He sort of rolls his eyes and kind of grimaces. Mm -hmm. But as they're singing like on key, and I just thought it was one of those many moments we've discussed where I'm like, man, Donald Glover is a treasure. What I mean, can this guy not do? <laughs> th no, this guy is such a good actor. And I guess I just never realized it when I watched this show the first time through. Well, partly because I was angry with him, and I think I still am, that he left the show for <laughs> oh. his childish Gambino career. And I mean, like, I was so like, dude, this show can't go on without Troy. Mm -hmm. And I remember being really bitter about that. And but you wouldn't have known that at this point in the show. No, no, no. I definitely yeah. wouldn't have known that. But I, that's true. But I guess what I'm saying is it sort of kind of then affected like the way I sort of yeah. saw him in the show. But yeah. by this point of the show, you know, and again, I was watching this appointment TV style, like it's 10 episodes in, but that's the benefit of going back to watch them now is you can focus on all these subtleties. Mm -hmm. And this is not the first time we've said this, but Donald Glover's physical comedy and his acting in general. I mean, he is fantastic in and this in this show. episode he's like leaping up onto the lab table and screaming and then immediately transitioning into threatening everyone who's making fun of him yeah. and it's so good and then yeah. at the end of the um uh, this arc when they are singing in the hallway to attract fifle and the fifle curls up troy's leg and he uh. just he does this like beautifully complicated um i'm proud i'm brave i'm disgusted dance while he gets the rat out of his pants and into the cage and it's just so funny it's so good it reminds me of when he's crawling out of uh -huh. Professor Duncan and Annie's whatever like yeah, the, the like Duncan experiment. principal experiment and he's just like he's like from like his hips down or just like you know like not just moving like and he's just weight. dragging yeah. himself out on his head yeah but I mean so good at this and yeah you're right that's a great moment when he jumps up on the desk and basically threatens to beat everybody up and then he's like but you got to come up here on the yeah. desk or whatever you know, he's like, <laughs> I'll kick all your asses but you got to come up here on the desk so good it's so good but he I mean he's he's so good in both of them like their voices are great like it, it's a really it's a very well acted and and demanding you know uh, the thing I'm super curious about is did the rat actually go up his pant leg because all they show you are jeans, know, right? like a pair of Nikes and I'm like dude yeah. how did was that just like was there no like human being in that le you know in that mm -hmm. set of that pair of jeans or whatever like what yeah. whose leg is that curious. yeah like how that really worked out but one way or the other um, and obviously I don't, I'm, I've never been like in a TV show. So I, maybe everyone, maybe other people are like, oh, that's how you do it. I don't know. Like, uh, but, um, <laughs> but no, I just think they're so good together. And I just, that was one thing that I really did notice is their voices are really, really good. But also as is often the case with Troy and Abed throughout the show, uh, up until the time, you know, uh, Donald Glover leaves, they are, they're 
friendship hiccups and quirks always get resolved in like just like this really mm-hmm. warm heartfelt like really kind of sweet cute it's like a, it's a great part of this show troy and abed are like a great great part of this show yeah and their friendship in general was there any was there anything else that you that you had on that before we maybe wrap it up yeah so i think something that stood out to me in, in this time viewing it is that troy and abed's duet of somewhere out there trying to uh, attract Fifel before he meets his doom with an exterminator. That layers with the conclusion of all the other storylines. So they intercut that with Shirley's speech. They intercut that with um, Green Day, the concert, and um, Chang's wife coming back to dance with him. So while this is happening with Troy and Ovid, like Chang and Senora Chang, I don't remember her name, are dancing and they're pretty much dancing to this music because this is the music we're hearing, right? We're not really hearing a whole bunch of music from Green Day. And I, we've talked before about how we seem to be like the exact same age as the creators of the show because we have this, the exact same like cultural reference points. And American Tale was a big one. Yes. Um, I think like everybody loved that. And in a way that I don't think happens anymore. Like it was ubiquitous. Like that was the big thing that happened that year. If you were a child, nothing else big happened that year. <laughs> like everyone loved Fifel. Everyone knew the words somewhere out there. Everyone felt heartbroken because he couldn't find his family. And so what stood out to me this time is I'm like, I feel myself like getting emotional in this scene when it really doesn't have any real emotional weight to it. But then I was like, nice. Well played, writers. I am a trained rat in your experiment, and I am emotionally responding to somewhere out there. Congratulations. (laughs) That's amazing. You pushed this button. I hadn't even, that's amazing. I hadn't even thought about how it's like our Pavlovian response (laughs) to that song. I mean, you're right. I saw an American tale in the theater. Yeah. And I remember like a seven year old me or whatever being like inspired sandy i was like holy crap he's gonna find his family i mean (laughs) that movie i mean i I, like i remember thinking like i this is uh, honestly gonna truth i remember thinking like at next year's talent show i'm gonna sing somewhere out there because i know i can nail that i was so inspired this is the most important song i have ever heard in my life yes (laughs) and that's the thing i didn't because i don't even think we had talent shows as far as i remember but i remember thinking like some at some point i'm gonna get the opportunity to sing this song like in the next couple weeks and i'm gonna nail it and and i or everyone that knows i have no vocal quality i have no musical quality but i definitely have no vocal quality so i but i'd remember even knowing at seven that I couldn't sing. I mean, I got kicked out of the little flower choir. I mean, how many people get kicked out of like a small (laughs) Catholic church choir when they're eight? They were like, friend, you are garbage. You just sit in the pew. We don't even want you involved in this. Um, They didn't let you like play the triangle or ring a bell or... (laughs) Well, I think they also saw that other things were were going on here, like namely my deep skepticism about anything they were teaching us. So I I think it was just better for everybody if they were like, you know what? You're not going to be in the choir anymore because you certainly (laughs) don't sing from a place of faith. Also, your voice (laughs) is ass. So, yeah. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> but yeah, it was hard. It's hard to overstate for people who weren't children when American yeah. Tale came out. It's so, hard to overstate the emotional resonance of that story and the song. <laughs> that was the jam. Shout out to Linda Ronstadt and James Ingram who made that song like a oh. top 10 hit. That might have even been a number one hit. Um, so yeah, <laughs> no, but I'm glad you brought that up. That is such a major cultural moment. Real quick, before we hit the coda, as we always do, did you have any favorite lines or like favorite part of the show? As I said, mine was the, the yeah, the line in Chang's office. <laughs> I'm not surprised, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah that <laughs> so was so good. good. I think that my favorite would have to be, and this happens really early on, when Annie calls Jeff a handsome hobo. And then she, for some reason, says um, your gravy train is leaving the station which is supposed yeah. to be a threat that the group is going to leave him and she starts doing like a chugga chugga choo choo <laughs> dance it's and so awkward so awkward and it's so beautiful and and Troy's just like pay no attention to her we are serious yeah <laughs> no that's uh, it's like, that's like that has, a... it's hard to pick because there are a lot of really good little just... moments in this one but I love Annie's choo choo dance so I will I will circle back to I'll add one even though I already took one but I, we didn't mention this with the rat stuff the rat puns were great <laughs> oh, so yeah. like Jeff's in Chang's office and you know uh, Abed comes in and says has anybody seen a rat and then later like he says to um, I th Troy standing with Britta and Annie in the cafeteria and then Troy takes off because he knows what this is about and and yeah again he walks up to them and says uh have you guys seen a rat or something like that <laughs> oh i think he says to to chang and jeff is there a rat in here and then later yes. he says to annie and, and britta have you guys seen a rat so the like the rat puns were great also that part's funny because then britta tries to like calm him by saying maybe the rats joined up with like all his other rat friends and or something like that and everything's fine and uh abed says something like Britta, why don't you join the rest of us in reality? <laughs> it's like such a good, it's such a good line from Abed to call Britta out for not being in reality. That's a fun reversal for them. It is. Oh my gosh, the other thing we haven't talked about, and it's because it is slotted in with like no reason, the Dean and the Dalmatian. <laughs> Yeah, nice. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. So the dean is watching some YouTube video of like a man dressed as like a demonic looking Dalmatian <laughs> doing some weird like very weird anthropomorphized Dalmatian yeah, man dance very... thing with like with like a six pack. You know, he's like this like buff Dalmatian, and the dean's yes, watching this and just says, so "What's he? What's he saying?" Oh, I hope this doesn't awaken anything. <laughs> nice yeah yeah exactly oh man that is well we'll have plenty of time in future episodes to delve into that but that is a great moment <laughs> this is the origin point yeah yeah with the dean saying this better not awaken anything in me and certainly whether it's that video or something else <laughs> something gets awoken in that man <laughs> yes. that often has to do with furries i believe they're called and dress and dalmatian suits and all kinds of stuff um but no i'm glad you brought that up yeah that's that's such a good throwaway line it has nothing to do with anything and nope. yet so poignant when you get to future episodes and you look and now watching mm -hmm. it again you're like oh my god i forgot that this is kind of where it started so um, like we didn't like we didn't think of this episode as one of the like character development kind of episodes but they plant a real big seed with the dean 
Yeah, it's true. They plant that seed, but also you get that development with Pierce and Je- I mean, you know, it, it's community. They find these subtle ways of getting these things accomplished, even though this episode for me seemed like one of the most episodic. It was just kind of like, here's a, here's some shenanigans that took place on campus one day. But now mm-hmm. that we're talking about it, I see that there's so much more to it and always layered in, in the way that they do. So you want to take it away with the coda? The What was the coda for this episode? Yeah, so we have a Troy and Abed coda in this one in the study room. And they are preparing for some kind of squirt gun battle with these really big uh, super soakers um, that have ridiculous names that I don't remember. (laughs) But it sounds like they're getting ready for kind of like an all out kind of like war situation where they'll have like base camps and this is going to take all day. (laughs) Pierce is obviously at least one of the other people who's going to play with this, you know, game. I don't know if it's supposed to be broader or not. (laughs) Pierce shows up with a tiny squirt gun. (laughs) And while they're making fun of him, he just squirts them each in the eye and they scream because they say he's put pepper in the water. And Pierce just drops the gun and walks away victorious. It's so good because they're like looking at a map, like a blueprint of the school and being like, I'm going to be over here. They came to play and Pierce came to win and then he left. Exactly. (laughs) But I believe, I can't remember what Abed's was called, but I believe Troy's was something like the Devil's Drench XJ3000 (laughs) or something, which is like amazing. But the other great line Troy has is when they're laughing at Pierce's little like water pistol and then he says i hope that's the gun you throw at us to distract (laughs) us while you're riffing your actual like water gun that's duct tape while you're reaching for your actual water gun that's duct tape to your back yeah and for anybody who remembers 80s action films there was Mm -hmm. always a dude who had something duct taped to his back that's such a great call to be like like, i feel like that's one of those things where like it probably only happened like twice but we all feel like it happened a million times that's true you're right that probably happened like maybe (laughs) twice but it seems like that was in every action film where it was like i'm gonna i'm gonna familiar duct tape this machete to my back (laughs) and at the very end when everybody thinks i've cashed in all my chips i'm gonna be one more weapon you know yeah (laughs) oh man no that was great but you're right pierce comes to win he doesn't he doesn't want to spend all day doing this dumb shit you know he's just like (laughs) yeah you want me to play fine but i'm just gonna spray you in the eyes with pepper water um oh that's fantastic all right i think that wraps it up for us anything else you want to add before we shut down here Gosh, no, I feel like we've covered an insane amount of ground just like this episode. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, thanks as always, Sandy, for joining me. You know, I'm glad we talked about it because now I, mm-hmm. I see this episode in a different light and maybe think more highly of it than I did coming into recording, which often happens for us. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. This, uh, again, was our take on environmental science, season one, episode 10 of Community. We'll be back soon with our take on season one, episode 11, which I think is called Politics of Human Sexuality. Um, That might be slightly off, but it's something in that range. I might've even written this down. Let me look real quick. It is in fact, yes, the Politics of Human Sexuality. So we'll be back with that soon. Thanks everybody for listening. Take care and we'll see you soon. Thanks. And if you don't know what we're talking about with American Tail, go watch it. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Awesome. All right. Bye everybody. Our theme music is Happy Dance by Cedric Gelke. Please subscribe to Streets Behind wherever you get your podcasts.